One thing I ask, (laughs) one thing I seek, to see your beauty. I mean, you do know, right, that we were just singing about the bug zapper. You're quoting David in Psalm 27, singing about the bug zapper of God. And David knew that it was a a bug zapper because he had seen his friend Uzzah get zapped. Remember when he had tried to save the ark from falling? as they prepared to place the ark in the Holy of Holies in the tent of meeting called the tabernacle or temple in Jerusalem. You see, it's weird that David was so attracted to this thing after being so entirely offended by this thing. It's weird that we would sing about it 3,000 years later. It's weird that a tent made of animal skins, like, like my skin, could both kill you and give you life. That's weird. My seminary professor used to say, well, really, what the word holy means is is weird. Last week, we spoke about what it was that Moses must have seen behind the veil in the most holy place, the most holy place. Remember, on the coffin of the law between the two cherubim. We said that he must have seen the God-man in the burning bush that wasn't burnt. That is the, the thorn tree, the burning thorn tree that revealed the glory of God. We said he must have seen Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We said he must have seen the slaughtered lamb sent on the throne. We said that he must have seen the atonement in the place of the atonement, which is the judgment on the judgment seat, which is the throne of God. We said that he must have seen God dancing on his own grave. We said that he must have seen love. We said that he must have seen the heart of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we we preach your word. Jesus, from the bosom of the Father, by the power of your Spirit, amen. Before we uh, begin a new series in the fall, I've been looking just at Old Testament verses that maybe I preached on uh, sometime in the past, or, or and, the, and verses that just grabbed my attention. Well, a few weeks ago, I realized that I hadn't preached on Numbers 13 and 14 for 26 years. And I thought, that's weird. I I looked at my old sermon notes, and then I thought, oh yeah, now I remember why. I don't think I ever want to preach this again. But then, like a bug to a bug zapper, my heart kept going back to Numbers 13 and 14. Which maybe you know is a report of the 12 spies sent out to spy on the promised land before Israel entered. Three sermons ago, you remember we preached on Joseph and his crazy dreams and how Jesus somehow lived his life through Joseph. Two sermons ago, we preached on Moses and his encounter with the burning bush, which happened 
400 years after Joseph and his dreams, but once again, Jesus lived his life through Moses. The last sermon, we preached on how the glory would appear on top of the coffin in the tabernacle, and it would tell Moses, or he would tell Moses which way to go. Numbers 13, Moses and the Israelites, they've arrived at the edge of the promised land. It's taken a month or maybe a little longer after their encounter on Mount Sinai. And it really isn't all that far. It really isn't all that complicated. The whole journey from Ramses to Jericho is nine hours and 33 minutes according to Google Maps. But Moses didn't Google it. He's not using a map. He's following a presence. And so to most folks, Moses would look like a fool. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. For from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So Moses picks 12 spies, one of them being Hosea, which is Hebrew for salvation, whom Moses calls Yeshua, or Yahshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Joshua is from the tribe of Joseph through, through Ephraim. And Caleb is from the tribe of Judah, and then there's 10 other spies. Moses sent them to spot the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they're few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor or whether there are trees in it or not. Now you've got to ask, why would God have the Israelites do this? He's already promised the land to them. In fact, he kind of swore it uh, to them in a, in a covenant given to Abraham. And then he's also promised it at the burning bush to Moses. And, and the Israelites, they've already witnessed his incredible power and, and wisdom. Next verse. Be of good courage. In my humble estimation, having witnessed our reaction to COVID and our reaction to our reactions to COVID and our reactions to political turmoil, the threats of nuclear war, the death of loved ones, this may be what we all need most right now. Courage. Courage is almost a contradiction in terms, writes G.K. Chesterton. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. This paradox is the whole principle of courage, even of quite earthly and quite brutal courage. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. Numbers 13, verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, and they told him, 
We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. They're giants. (laughs) So isn't that kind of interesting? Both groups had the exact same experience, and yet completely different experiences of that experience. Alright, y'all just check your seatbelt real quick. Oh, you need check it? Did you check it? I ain't The woman on the left was just like the 10 spies, and the woman on the right was like Joshua and Caleb, and I I think I got some of both. Chapter 14, verse 1, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now you see, to me, that makes perfect sense at this point. The people had seen that God was all-powerful. Who could deny that after the Red Sea? And they had seen that he was all-wise. He parted the Red Sea, annihilated the Egyptian. He fed them with bread from heaven and and water from a rock, but he had also led them into battle. Some of them had died, it appears, and that would certainly happen in the future. He had the Levites kill 3,000 of those that worshiped the golden calf. His wrath had even consumed the complainers in the outer parts of the camp. Israel knew that Yahweh was all-powerful and all-wise, but they did not know that he was good. And not just good in the go to the dentist kind of way of being good, but in the chocolate cake or your sweetheart in a bikini kind of way. And so you see, this makes sense to me. And if I was them, I think I would also be asking this. If you are that wise and that powerful, why this outrageously bizarre journey? Surely you could get us to the land of Canaan some other way, at least according to Google Maps. 
Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey, the promised land. Maybe you've spent some time in the tabernacle and now you feel like God is telling you that you have some promised land to occupy. Maybe it's a business venture. Maybe it's a ministry opportunity. Maybe it's a marriage or relationships with children or wife or husband or friend. Maybe it's being obedient to something that he's clearly told you to do. But you just don't want to do it, like pay your taxes or stay faithful to your husband or your wife. Maybe you occupied the land or you thought you occupied the land, but now you've lost it. Maybe you haven't heard any promise about any land. All you've heard is don't quit, keep going. Maybe the land is simply your future. And you're terrified of all sorts of giants in that land. Nuclear war, COVID, cancer, economic collapse, broken relationships, failed dreams, and death. And so, you just sit there. Or stay in bed. The last time I preached on these verses was June 1st, 1997. I began by telling the story of Larry Walters, who, if you remember, tied his favorite lawn chair to some weather balloons lost control of the situation and shot up 11,000 feet over Los Angeles, California, diverting traffic around LAX for four hours. When they finally got him down and they said, why would you do such a thing? He said, well, you can't just sit there. At the time, I felt like we were just sitting there. In a little over four years, our church had increased tenfold. Each weekend, we had four services, and I would watch as we'd turn people away at the door. I showed everyone a map, and I said, we sent out some spies and discovered that we could purchase property and build a building just like a mile away on the side of Interstate 70 where the world drives by. As part of the service, we had everyone drive over to the new land and pound a nail and a crossbeam out in the field as a token of our commitment to the project and in remembrance of the fact that although we took Jesus' life, he gave his own life. And now that we were, we were called to proclaim this incredible news where the world drives by. In six years, we had raised the money, built the building, purchased the three large office buildings next door, and we had moved in. In the next four years, we continued to grow, but at the end of three years, I was being charged with heresy, and then I was put on trial, and then I was removed without any real opportunity to even say goodbye. 26 years ago, in the sermon, I told everyone that the land on the other side of the, the freeway wasn't the promised land, but the giants in the land were our fears and our own lack of courage. I said the real estate wasn't the promised land, but I did tell everyone that as best as I could tell, we were to move ahead and occupy the land. So now for 15 years I've wondered, was I wrong? 
And sometimes when I think that question, I find myself just desperately wanting to quit. Where the world drives by was our building campaign slogan, because they said we had to come up with one. Where the world drives by, this is what it meant, where the world drives by, people would see the body of Christ. But I think a part of me also thought where the world drives by, people will see a monument to Peter's hard work, his success. But in November of 2007, I remember thinking how ironic, where the world drives by, a monument to Peter's failure. And then I thought, where the world drives by, Peter Hyatt gets crucified. I'm going to tell you my story because it's the one I know best. But I bet you could tell, or one day you will tell, a very similar story with just a few minor changes to some details. Well, Numbers 14, 8, Joshua and Caleb say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for their bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, stone them with stones. (laughs) But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses, now remember, this has kind of happened with Moses a few times now. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face. Remember, that kills people. You are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, now if you kill this people as one man, what a weird thing to say, kill this people as one man. How would he do that? If you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. Now Moses brings up an utterly fascinating point that hardly any commentators dare to even mention. And that is that not only did God promise to unconditionally bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's seed, but through Moses, God had unconditionally promised to bring all these people into the land. And Moses makes it explicit here. So notice, the them to whom he swore to give the land are the same them that he's now threatening to kill in the wilderness. Verse 17, and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That does not mean that the children pay for the father's sins. It means that we all suffer the pain of each other's sins until we stop sinning. God constantly forgives, but he will not stop disciplining until there's nothing left to discipline. These words are what God had said 
as he revealed his glory. These words that Moses just quoted. Remember, he revealed his glory in Exodus 34, and his glory was his goodness that he made pass by Moses in the cleft of the rock. The goodness is the thing that Adam did not know in the garden. The goodness is the thing that appeared above the coffin in the tabernacle. The goodness of God is the glory of God that burns evil like a bug zapper burns bugs. Verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people. According to the greatness of your hesed, your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, then the Lord said, I have pardoned. I have pardoned. According to your word, just as you said, Moses. But truly, as I live, and now for the second time in Scripture, we will actually hear God swear. The first time we heard it was God swore an oath, remember, to Abraham and made a covenant. Now he swears to Moses upon his life. And Jesus is his life. Jesus is God's word. Jesus is God's swear word. That's what he is. He swears upon his life, and one, utter, one other utterly amazing thing that all the commentaries just seem to ignore. Truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, or and as all the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. In 2007, I was defrocked, and the sanctuary began because I refused to renounce the idea that all the earth could be filled with the glory of the Lord. Truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled, or and as all the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see or do see. This is an imperfect Hebrew verb, which refers to incomplete action either in the future or the present. So Young's literal translation translates verse 23 as follows. They, these men, they see not the land which I have sworn to their fathers, the land that I swore to give to their fathers. So you see, no matter how we translate this, it just gets a little bit crazy. For God swears by the fact that the earth will be or is filled with his glory. Just as he showed Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 in the temple. But, but remember that his glory is his goodness and the fire that fills the temple, that fills the tabernacle. So if the disobedient Israelites are sent to Sheol, which is also translated hell, and which, by way, is the location of the fathers, to whom God swore that he would give the land. If God sends the disobedient Israelites to Sheol, he is sending them into the depths of the earth. The very earth that he swore or swore by would be or is filled with his glory, which is the same glory that fills the most holy place in the tabernacle. It's his life. And it gets even weirder. For in Deuteronomy 1, Moses makes it clear that he is also one of the disobedient Israelites. Not allowed to enter the land, but sent to Sheol to rest with the fathers. But lo and behold, 1,500 years later, he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Jesus, who is shining like the sun. And Luke points out that they discuss the exodus in Greek, the exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. It's as if Jesus is leaving this age, 
and uh, ascending into another age, entering the age to come, which is all things filled with the glory of God, which is the promised land. And it gets even weirder than that, for when Jesus dies, the veil in the temple rips. Remember, Matthew records that the tombs are open, and the holy ones, who, by the way, were not holy ones before, the saints enter the city. That is Jerusalem or the New Jerusalem. It's just like God showed Ezekiel. The dry bones that rise and enter the land are the whole dang house of Israel. Verse 23, none of the disobedience shall see or do see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, <laughs> swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised or do despise me shall see it or do see it. If he means none of them shall see the land, he must mean they shall not see the land now or in this age. A lot of times in the New Testament when you read the word never, it's, it's uh, not ever or not in this ion. The book of Hebrews quotes these verses, and some translators translate uh, the book of Hebrews using the word never, but that's not even in the text. It, in the Greek, it's just they did not enter the land. And if the land means, and if the Lord means by this that the whole world, world is already filled with his glory, and none of the disobedient see it, you see, it means that in reality the entire creation is a most holy place. And. The veil in the temple that is us is actually a veil that is covering our eyes. <laughs> like we're asleep in an illusion. As we learned last week, the most holy place is the age to come where everything is good and it is finished. So the inside of the most holy place is bigger than all the outside of the most holy place. It's bigger than all creation. It's all creation filled with eternity. Verse 23, none of those who despise me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his, literally, seed shall possess it. Verse 28, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. You know, God has a way of walking us into our fears, right? until we get sick of our fears and we surrender to his courage. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come or does come into the land where I swore, here it is again, I swore that I would make you dwell. So is God made true to his swear word? I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, of the son of Jephunneh, he'll go in, and Joshua, the son of Nun, but your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lie in, lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. Forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity. You shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. So check this out. They're all pardoned. God already said that. They're all pardoned, and yet they will bear their iniquity for 40 years, and their sins will be visited upon their children, who will be shepherds for 40 years, and perhaps those children will learn courage on their journey. But when the parents die, they will have already borne their iniquity. 
Nobody's damned to endless conscious torment. It's not even a concept in Scripture. They're damned to wander around in this age, which might sound familiar to you. They're damned to wander around in this age for 40 years and then just wait for the end. But in the process, maybe they will also learn courage. Verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Courage is a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Perhaps they'll learn courage. That is, learn to die so that they can live. And God will be faithful to his word, his swear word, Jesus. And what does it mean to say that they will come to a full end? What is the end? According to Scripture, it's also the beginning. Who is Jesus? Who is the life? Standing on top of the coffin in the tabernacle. Now, I know that I probably gave all of you, and this probably gives all of you a headache. So, for now, forget about the folks that don't get in. Okay, Numbers 14. And let's just concentrate on the ones that do get in, Joshua, Caleb, and children. Why them? Why them? Well, Joshua and Caleb get in because they have courage. They have, in the words of Chesterton, a strong desire to live, taking the form of readiness to die. We'll ask where that courage comes from in just a moment. Joshua, Caleb, and the children get in. And somewhere along the line, I heard someone say that you must become like children to get in. Do you remember that? Deuteronomy 1, just before Moses dies and Joshua leads the generation, that generation of Israel in the promised land, Moses recounts the words from 40 years before. It's fascinating to read. But, but he says, Caleb and his seed will enter, and Joshua will lead your children and enter. And then in verse 39, Moses quotes God as having said, as for your children, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in. Now you see, if God meant that, that's just huge. For if it's, if it's true, what, what God said, it means that little children don't have the knowledge of good and evil. Which means that little children have not yet taken fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which means that we don't inherit sin, but we're each born without the knowledge of good and evil. Which means that the garden story isn't just a story about a naked guy in a garden long ago, it's a story about you. And everyone that you know, and how it is that we each became self-conscious and so began to wrap ourselves in fig leaves, clothing, self-righteousness, and shame. The fall of Adam is the story of how you developed a Messiah complex. But now, to enter the promised land, you have to surrender your Messiah complex to the Messiah. You have to surrender the illusion that you are our own creator to the creator. You have to surrender your self-made man to become God's man. You have to surrender. You have to sacrifice your psychicos body, as Paul puts it, your self-righteous ego, your flesh, and become a little child. And that takes courage. Little children enter because they have hardly any ego to sacrifice. 
but you have an ego to sacrifice. So anyway, Caleb and his seed enter. Caleb is of the house of Judah, and the promised seed Jesus comes through Judah. So maybe Jesus is in Caleb. Maybe that's where Caleb gets his courage. Maybe that is his courage. Joshua is of the house of, of Joseph. And to Joseph, remember, who lived the life of Christ, belongs the birthright. So Jesus is in Caleb, and Joshua is in Jesus. Joshua is simply another form, the Hebrew form of the word Jesus, the name Jesus. And check this out. Caleb is actually the Hebrew word for, any of you know? Dog. I means dog. Dogs are insanely faithful to their masters. Our dog, Roxanne, literally died because she wouldn't be parted from Elizabeth and I as we were climbing Mount Morrison one day. Her heart literally burst. Later, the vet told us, yeah, she had a tumor, and because she wouldn't, you, she wouldn't be without you, she, it, it blew up. Well, Jesus and his dog get in. <laughs> I just like that. I like that picture. But if we ask, why did Joshua, the man that walked this earth for 3,500 years, or 3,500 years ago, why did he cross the Jordan and enter the land of Israel? I think the answer is found in our text from last week. Exodus 33:10. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise, rise up and worship each at his tent door, his own tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again, into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. See, that implies that Joshua no longer even had his own tent. Or he didn't dwell there. St. Paul writes, if this earthly, earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. See, it's like Joshua had already entered the promised land, which is God's tent. So what did Joshua see inside God's tent? I'm sure that he couldn't put it into words, and, and neither can we. But by way of reminder, he must have seen the tree in the middle of the garden and the truth that although we constantly take God's life, God constantly gives his life. He must have seen the word of God spoken and even crucified in a garden at the edge of eternity and time. He must have seen the slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. He must have seen Jesus risen from the dead. He must have seen God in a body dancing on his own grave. He must have seen the heart of God from the bosom of the Father. He must have seen love, but not cartoon love, real love. In this is love that God loved us and sent his only begotten son as atonement, kapareth. He, he gave us his very heart. And this is the plan for the fullness of time, writes Paul, to unite all things in him. Remember that the tabernacle was the presence of the age to come, and in the age to come, the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. This is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. It clearly implies that all things are somehow his body. You, you know, if I think of all creation, or at least all people, as one body, that is one tabernacle or tent of meeting, and I think of the most holy place as the beating heart of God, then suddenly the atonement becomes stunningly beautiful. 
And I no longer see sacrifice as pain. I see it as endless delight. And I begin to have courage. I take heart. For what does a heart do? It constantly loses its life. The life, the breath, the oxygen, the spirit is in the blood. It constantly loses its life that the entire body might live. It sacrifices continually. From outside of a body, sacrifice looks like death. Just a whole lot of bleeding. But from inside of a body, sacrifice not only looks like life, it literally is life. Life is a sacrificial communion of a multitude of members who each willingly bleed one for the other. If one member refuses to bleed and instead hold on to the life, it is literally dead, for it refuses to die that it might live. It's a vessel of wrath. But if that member loses its life for the sake of the heart and the body, it finds its life. And not just later, in the very same heartbeat. It's a vessel of mercy, a blood vessel, and life is not a possession. It's not yours. It's a river, a dance. In the tent, I bet Joshua saw, felt, or somehow knew all things filled with the glory of God, and God is love, and love is a decision to sacrifice. In the tabernacle, which is the body, sacrifice is literally eternal life. But from outside of the tabernacle, sacrifice can be just terrifying. And do you remember how Israel was taught to enter the tent? Leviticus 17, God said this to Moses, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is, in, it is the blood that makes atonement. When an Israelite sacrificed in the temple, the sacrifice was not a penal substitution. It wasn't a penal substitutionary atonement. God does not need to kill a sheep or a goat to feel better about you. The sacrifice was an act of love and a representation of yourself so that just as you received life from God, you now were returning life to God, your life, which is the life formerly imprisoned within you. In the New Testament, Paul makes this clear. We studied it, remember, two years. Present your body as a sacrifice, living and holy. So entering the tent can be terrifying and painful. It's losing your life. But abiding in the tent is living your life, which is actually Christ's life. It's eternal life. It's life in the body of Christ inside the torn curtain that is quite literally His flesh, according to the book of Hebrews. Your tent becomes his tent, his tent becomes your tent, and that's the promised land. What I'm trying to say is that entering the tent takes courage, and entering the tent is the very same as entering the promised land, and Joshua couldn't wait to enter the promised land because for 40 years, as Israel wandered in the wilderness, for 40 years, he had been entering and abiding in the tent already. 
And now I hope it's become obvious that the promised land is far, far more than real estate. The promised land is all things filled with love, including modern-day Israel, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Russia, the United States, and even the depths of the earth. The promised land is all things filled with love, and love is a decision to sacrifice. Love is God, and love in flesh is the body of Christ. And when his will becomes your will, you become the dancing body of God. God's will is the faith, the hope, and the love of Jesus. It's courage. You know, it's fascinating to study, but Israel would not truly occupy the land as God had promised for at least a thousand years. In fact, if you pay close attention, it looks like the conquest of Canaan is basically an epic failure. Except for this. It was all a setup. It was all a stage prepared for the death and the resurrection of Jesus in the garden on the holy mountain where the world drives by. There we took his life and there he gave his life and that's called courage. So was I supposed to preach on Numbers 13 and 14, 26 years ago and asked people to sign up for the, the building program. From outside of the tabernacle in this world of space and time, I think I might say, ah, maybe not. I don't think I would do that again. But from inside the tabernacle where it is finished and everything is good, I would have to say, well, absolutely Yes. Actually, everything, everything went exactly according to plan. It may have been my failure, but my failure is God's eternal success. Part of me may have meant it for evil, but God predestined it for good. And the other part of me was actually Christ in me, living his life through me. We are the Messiah's complex. You know, inside of the tabernacle, even your worst decisions become the best decision. Anytime you suffer for the sake of love, any moment in which you suffer for the sake of love, you know, it could be that you're saying sorry for something in the past or believing forgiveness for something in the past. That moment is changed from the worst decision into the best decision. It could be now helping your neighbor pull weeds. It could be investing in the future of another. But anytime you sacrifice because you want to, that is anytime that you love in freedom, you enter the land. You enter the holy place. And not just you, it's Christ in you. It's courage. From outside the tent, we call it courage and sacrifice. From inside the tent, we experience it as something else entirely. And now I would be remiss if I did not mention that, as, as you saw, 40 years ago, actually like right now, like around 11.15 in the morning, May 28th, 1983, I intentionally flew into a bug zapper. <laughs> this is me, in the words of G.K. Chesterton, drinking death like wine. But nobody said, oh, Peter, what a sacrifice you're making. What courage 
you have, because it was obvious that I had glimpsed the glory in this tent. It's so beautiful. But now imagine if 40 years ago, and it was just this morning I realized the implications of that 40 years ago. If 40 years ago I had never taken any interest in Susan's tent, and so she came up to me with a gun in her hand, held it to my head, and said this. Listen closely, buddy. From this point forward, every paycheck will go directly to me. And when people ask about this, you will smile and say that it is your choice, that you want to do this. Now, you do this, or I will endlessly torture you. Well, from that point forward, if I actually believed her, that would be hell. I would be in bondage. Or imagine if 40 years ago, Susan had never taken any interest in my tent, and so I held a gun to her head and I said, listen closely, sweetheart. From this day forward, your body is my body. You will strip. No fig leaves. I will see your shame, and then I will enter your tent. And I will enter your tent time and time again whenever I desire. But you will smile and you will tell everybody that this is happening because it's your choice. Do this or I will torture you forevermore. Well, that would be the very definition of evil. And yet that is what Susan has done for me and what I have done for Susan. We've sacrificed our lives. And at times it hurt. And it did Take some courage. I was a bit terrified that day. But it hasn't been hell. It's really, it's been heaven. It's been my sanctuary. And it hasn't been evil. It's the very definition of the good. It's not obedience in fear to a dead law. It's the life of love. In one tent. And now if you say, well, Peter, that's nice for you, but not for me. Then you do not understand my message. Bride of Christ. For on the night that he was betrayed by all of us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup. And he said, this is the covenant. It's a marriage covenant. This is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of, of me. This is a marriage proposal. But even more, it is a description of life inside the tent. The one body of Christ. Receive it or Wonder in the wilderness, even the depths of the earth, until you do. One thing I ask, and I will seek to see your beauty, to find you in the place your glory dwells. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere, saying King David, the man after God's own heart. And you see, that's what Joshua saw inside the tent. That God is good. Not just go to the dentist kind of good. But the chocolate cake kind of good. God is good and his goodness is life. It's so beautiful. 
One day your tent will utterly fail. Have you noticed that? It's happening. But to cross the Jordan and enter the promised land will take courage. And that's what God has given you right now. Death is actually refusing to die. Can I say that again? Death is actually refusing to die. It's getting stuck here. But life is constantly dying that you might constantly live. It's courage. He is courage. So tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine, and ingest your courage. Amen. And so in the name of Jesus, on this Pentecost Memorial Ascension Sunday, have courage. Amen.